Thanks for listening to Star Lores. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and giving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also help us make more great content by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com. We would also love to hear from you on social media. You can follow Star Lores on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy the show, and may the Force be with you. You are listening to the Star Lores Podcast. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Why you stuck up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder? But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Fall of the House of Sijron. The Feline nobility had been virtually wiped out by a genetic warfare experiment, one that was initiated by Lord Vader. Of that family grouping, the only surviving member was Prince Shizor, who was then the head of the Black Sun organization. Boba Fett, circa 4 ABY. During the most violent years of the Galactic Civil War, Three beings possessed nearly limitless power, authority, and cruelty. Emperor Palpatine, sometimes known as Darth Sidious, was the greatest among them, followed by his lieutenant, Darth Vader. The third greatest power was Prince Shizor of House Sijran, of the planet and species Falin. This is the story of how a displaced prince almost foiled both the Empire's and the Rebellion's plans for their civil war. This is the story of barely suppressed illegal trade conducted beneath the Empire's complicit nose. The story a princess wanted to forget. The story of dark shadows cast by the light of the galaxy's greatest empire in its waning years. The basic silhouette of this story is a matter of record, but some details are hidden from the light. In 7 BBY, the reclusive world of Feline hosted an Imperial Biological Weapon Research Facility, overseen by Darth Vader. In that year, there was an accident at the laboratory, and a flesh-eating bacteria escaped into the population of Feline. Upon learning of this, Vader ordered the city where the lab was to be sterilized. The city's population was around 200,000, and among the civilian casualties were most of House Shizran. Shizor's family, 
including siblings and parents, were wiped out, though at least one niece survived Vader's sterilization. Shizor's father was the ruler of a kingdom on a minor continent, hence Shizor's princely title. His work with the Black Sun criminal cartel earned him the moniker Dark Prince. When Shizor learned of Vader's role in the elimination of House Shijuan, he performed the information suppression that Vader overlooked, and was sure to destroy any evidence pointing to House Shijuan's demise being connected to Vader, so as to eliminate suspicion the Empire may have as to the Prince's motivation. As he began his campaign of disinformation, Shizor tended to a black seed of vengeance planted by Vader. Feline are a long-lived species, and thus patience is a virtue Shizor had in abundance. He carefully attended to the sapling for nearly a decade, pruning it like a firethorn tree until 3.5 ABY, when it blossomed to its violent potential, and Shizor was engulfed in flames. Dark Prince Rising. I bowed and scraped to every one of Lord Vader's demands. They couldn't have found a more amenable business partner. Shizor inherited Shizor's transport systems, XTS, from his father, if not their ruined kingdom. The company hauled freight and built ships for the Empire, and formed the legitimate arm of Shizor's commercial enterprise. Other notable services rendered by XTS included building luxury sand barges and sponsoring swoop races. The illegal arm of his business was Black Sun, the galaxy-spanning cartel rivaled only by the Huts. By the time the Dark Prince earned the position of Vigo in Black Sun, his reputation as being cold-blooded extended beyond his reptomammalian physiology. He thought nothing of having enemies and even scorned lovers murdered by one of the many killing machines he owned. As part of Darth Sidious's grand plan, Black Sun was brought to an all-time low in terms of power and influence in the years leading up to the Clone Wars. Darth Maul is probably most responsible for this, as he personally killed their leader and many of their nine Vigos. In the resulting power vacuum, many Falene rose to prominence in Black Sun's hierarchy. During the Clone Wars, Black Sun rebuilt itself with profits earned smuggling Boda, a plant with force-enhancing properties. By the Galactic Civil War, Shizors replaced Dal Peri as Underlord of Black Sun, and Black Sun had reestablished itself as a powerhouse in the underworld economy. During his reign, Shizor disrupted the business of smuggling rival Oro Transportation, feuded with the Zan Consortium, and became deeply embedded in the affairs of the Empire. Prince Shizor's business portfolio was vast and varied, and even included hut interests. It is a rare thing for a hut to work for another much less a non-hut. Through a series of cunning business moves and double crosses, Shizor effectively destroyed the Besidai Kaijedek and made its leader, Durga, one of his Vigos. Another point attesting to his supremacy in the underworld is the fact that Java Dasilajik would speak to the prince face-to-face -face and in Galactic Basic, 
Huts are generally disdainful of other species and go to no lengths to make them feel comfortable. Jabba speaking basic is as close to bending over backwards that a hut can get. Furthermore, huts are typically highly competitive with other underworld groups and extract protection fees from legitimate businesses operating on their turf. That XTS and the Dark Prince conducted businesses on worlds like Tatooine relatively unmolested in full view of the Desilogic Kajadek further speaks to his reputation and the respect it earned him in the underworld. XTS sponsored swoop races on Tatooine and also built sail barges used on similar planets. Finally, Jabba was even known to subcontract his swoop gang to Shizor for wet work. During the Imperial years, Shizor attempted to acquire rival shipping company Ren Trans, owned by the Rendar family. When his acquisition failed, Shizor turned to a less civil stratagem and sabotaged a freighter flown by Stanton Rendar, causing it to crash into a vault owned by Emperor Palpatine. Many precious items were lost in the accident, not the least of which was Stanton's life. Palpatine exiled the Rendar family from the Empire in retribution. Stanton's brother Dash was studying at the Imperial Academy on Cardia, but was expelled due to the accident. Just as Vader had unwittingly created a powerful adversary by his callous brutality, and so too did Shizor. Dash Rendar went on to play an integral role in the Dark Prince's downfall. As much as he had an eye for vengeance, Shizor had a taste for decadence and conspicuous signals of his wealth. Prior to the Clone Wars, he raised the Farafala skyscraper on Coruscant. In a place as clogged with massive buildings as Imperial City, this was no simple or cheap task. Shizor erected his massive palace on the cleared ground, and its proximity to Palpatine's palace and Vader's castle was no coincidence. He wanted to be close to power, and closer to his enemy, Vader. Shizor appreciated fine dining, and ate the potentially lethal and outrageously expensive Moonglow fruit at least once a month. He partly owned Menorai, one of Coruscant's most expensive and exclusive restaurants, eating there on a weekly basis. Despite an opulent lifestyle, he maintained a muscular physique by using state-of-the-art muscle stimulation devices, eschewing regular exercise. Shizor's most refined tastes were for females of a variety of races, whom he discarded when he quickly tired of them. He would usually compensate these women handsomely for their services at the conclusion of their relationship, but the penalty for daring to contact him afterwards was death. His character trait led to his downfall when he set his sights on Princess Leia, assuming that he could control her by way of his pheromonal abilities and other charms. He planned to both seduce the headstrong princess, as well as trap and kill Luke Skywalker as part of his plot for vengeance against Vader. He failed on both accounts. Death in the Shadows XTS built many ships with deadly potential like Star Viper-class starfighters, or Vigo Corvettes. Such ships were used in a modest navy Shizor maintained near his skyhook, Faline's Fist, above Coruscant. The Fist was ostensibly a personal space station, but as one would expect from Shizor, it was heavily armed with turbolasers and could serve as the nerve center of his navy, effectively being able to become a battle station should the need arise. In a further emulation of his imperial colleagues, Shizor headhunted Emperor Palpatine's 
gardener from his skyhook to work as the fist's gardener. As far as anybody knows, this was the biggest gripe Palpatine had against the prince, as he had his former gardener assassinated before starting work with Shizor. The fist also had a massive power core similar to those found on the other battle stations of the era. Shizor also maintained a small army inside his 100-story-plus palace. Members of his army included the elite Crimson Armored Coruscant Guards, terrifying interrogator droids, and assassin droids. The Coruscant Guard, Seeker Droids, and the Dianaga Infestation kept the masonry section of the sewers running beneath the palace intruder-free. The Dark Prince's favorite death machine was his gladiator droid. The anthropoid Techno-Terror stood about 20 feet tall, and its two arms served as mounts for an arsenal of missiles, flame projectors, and a pulse cannon. In the middle of its triangular head was a menacing red eye, as well as a continuous beam laser weapon. The droid's torso and head could detach from the lower body using repulsor lifts, and the head could detach from the torso module should the other modules be damaged. It was maintained in an arena in his palace. XTS contracted 300 ships for the construction of the Death Star II. With this act, Shizor greatly raised the suspicions of Darth Vader. These suspicions culminated in the destruction of the Skyhook by Vader's executor in retaliation for meddling in his plans for Luke Skywalker. Try as he might, Shizor could never imitate the power of the Imperial Navy. More human than human. One of only a handful of human replica droids ever made, and the only one ever programmed to be an assassin. A perfect construct. Masad Thrumble. Circa 4 AB1. Like most of the things Prince Shizor owned, the human replica droid, HRD, known as Guri, was outrageously expensive. After her design and construction was complete, she cost a whopping 9 million credits, as much as several top-of-the-line starships. Though redesigned by Masad Thrumble to be an assassin, Guri was capable of expanding her programming. She ran many of Black Sun's daily operations, spoke multiple alien languages, and was even known to service some of Shizor's non-nutritive appetites. Guri had fully functioning organs made of biofibers, and her bones were made of polymer-covered alloys. Rather than synth skin, her skin was cloned, and she passed as a human at to most superficial scanners. The only way a person without a scanner could learn that Guri was more than human was by getting close enough to realize that she was cold to the touch. She had a heavily modified AA1 Verbo brain in order to carry out the unorthodox duties Prince Scheiser demanded her to perform. Some of Guri's notable kills included Imperial Advisor Fendrilin Kuzar, the Bounty Hunter Bosch, and Aurora Syndicate members. She displayed a preference for hand-to-hand combat, specializing in spear finger thrusts to the throat as a killing blow to her organic opponents. Giri fought Luke Skywalker in Shizor's palace, but was defeated in unarmed combat. She managed to escape before the building was destroyed, however. 
After Shizor's death, perhaps inspired by Skywalker's mercy towards her, Guri sought out her maker, Masad Thrumble. At her request, he deleted her assassin programming, and she would later form a business partnership with Dash Rendar, first as a mercenary duo, and then as a template for a new line of HRDs produced by Onadax Industries, a droid manufacturer they co-founded. There are six of them! Six? To guard a sewage plant? So what? That's only one and a half each. How long does it take for you to pull a trigger, Calrissian? Luke Skywalker, Lando Calrissian, and Dash Rendar, circa 3.5 ABY. Born in 29 BBY, Dash Rendar would reach legendary status, perhaps only in his own mind, by 3.5 ABY. The records diverge somewhat about his physical description. He is usually considered to have been a Corellian human of medium build, fair complexion, with red hair and green eyes. This rough-and-tumble spacer played an important but often overlooked role in the Rebel Alliance's eventual victory at the Battle of Endor. Dash first met fellow spacer and hotshot pilot Han Solo at the esteemed Imperial Academy on Carita. Comparable in skill and cockiness, the two became somewhat friendly rivals, although Rendar would be chagrined at Solo's notoriety following the Battle of Yavin. Like Solo, Rendar also flew a YT-series Corellian freighter called the Outrider, though it was a YT-2400 rather than the YT-1300 Millennium Falcon, perhaps indicating a more up-to-date ship. Both were also known to play cards against the professional gambler, Lando Calrissian. Dash was known as an ace pilot, an unparalleled marksman with a blaster pistol, a mercenary, and sometimes swoop pilot. Like Han, Dash made extensive modifications to his ship. These included stolen Imperial ion engines, a Sorosub hyperdrive, and hand-tooled laser cannons for added precision. He reinforced the hull for combat and coated it in a material that hid Outrider from some sensors. As talented as Dash might be, nobody could successfully fly and maintain a ship like Outrider through combat and smuggling conditions without help, for which Rendar used Lebo, a Cybot Galactica repair droid. Rendar acquired the useful droid for a thousand credits from a bounty hunter in need of quick cash on Rhodia. That money proved to be a wise investment, as the droid had a plethora of astrogation and general spacing software added by each of his previous owners. Due to infrequent, if ever, memory wipes, Lebo developed an eccentric personality and unique sense of humor, appreciated mostly by Dash. Though he had a number of death-defying adventures, Captain Rendar is best known for rebel missions, starting with the Battle of Hoth and ending with his pre- presumed death over Coruscant just prior to his rival Han's rescue from Jabba's palace in 4 ABY. On a routine supply and weapons run to Echo Base, Rendar found himself temporarily conscripted into Rogue Squadron, where he flew a snow- snowspeeder, and according to him, took down at least one AT-AT. 
as Rogue Squadron retreated to their X-Wings to cover Echo Base's evacuation, Rendar needed to rendezvous with Lebo and Outrider on the other side of Echo Base from where he parked his snowspeeder. He narrowly missed an encounter with Darth Vader as the Millennium Falcon escaped Echo Base. As he blasted his way through the stormtrooper-infested ice caverns, Rendar came across a number of wampas held captive in cages, overseen by snowtroopers. This was probably the beginning of the Empire's bioengineering of the wampa. Imperial officers were impressed by the hulking creatures, both by their ferocity and cunning used against the occupants of the base. Rendar came across the results of the Empire's bioengineering and the cliff wampas later on at Gaul in the caverns of Smuggler's Gorge. And the hangar just adjacent to where Outrider waited, Dash encountered an Imperial ATSD walker. At this point, some skepticism must be raised about Rendar's narrative. Other details, like his participation in the Battle of Hoth, are confirmed by outside sources like Leia, Han, Luke, or Lando. His single-handed destruction of the walker was only witnessed and reported by himself. After escaping Hoth, Rendar tracked IG-88D to Ord Mantell. The droid rights activist and bounty hunter IG-88D came out on the wrong side of a space battle against Boba Fett. IG crashed his ship, Slave 2000, after the battle, then traveled to a junkyard on the outskirts of Ord Mantell. From the Outrider, Lebo reprogrammed a hovertrain to ram through the reinforced gates of IG's warehouse stronghold. As though programmed to be a villain of the unbelievable caricature variety, IG divulged Han and Fett's location to Dash. A blaster shootout erupted, and IG put the heat on Dash, but in the end, the Carillion decommissioned the last surviving IG droid. From there, Rendar tracked Boba Fett to the Imperial spaceport at Gaul. Skywalker reported that Rendar only guided the Falcon on a sensor-avoiding, low-altitude route through Smuggler's Gorge. Once the Falcon found a good landing spot, Outrider retreated as Dash's contract at the time only stipulated that he provide rebel forces with the secret route. The creative Corellian, on the other hand, claims that he landed Outrider and scoured the sheer rock walls surrounding the Imperial base in search of his frozen college buddy, Captain Solo. There is an interesting piece of evidence pointing to the truth, however. Data recovered from probe droids destroyed near Gaul base around 3 ABY contained detailed scans of a Wampa variant living at the base. The Imperial bioengineered natural history of this creature was confirmed by senior xenoanthropologist Mammon Houle. However, Dash and Mammon had a relationship dating back to zero ABY. Details about the Empire's Wampa experiments were not confirmed until around eight ABY, when Houle published the new essential guide to species, opening the possibility that Dash acquired this information from Hool 
prior to visiting Gaul. Rendar says he tracked Fett to a landing pad where the bounty hunter was waiting on repairs to Slave One to conclude. The teal-armored Mandalorian shot an anti-personnel rocket mounted on his Z-6 jetpack and asked no questions of Dash. Rendar claims to have used a jetpack stolen from Imperial forces at Gaul in his fight against Fett, but no evidence as to the existence of this device he described has come to light. Over the course of this firefight, Fett made use of his arsenal. He took pot shots at Rendar with his EE-3 blaster carbine, doused the blaster slinger with fire using his miniature flame projector, and made himself a difficult target by way of his own jetpack. The battle entered the third dimension as the two spacers zipped through the air above the landing bay, firing at each other. Despite mounting a ferocious offense, Fett required the defense of his formidable armor as Dash gained the upper hand in the battle and blasted Fett back to his ship. As Fett escaped Gull with a carbonite frozen hand in the hold of Slave One, Rendar managed to give the infamous bounty hunter a parting gift by damaging his ship with nothing but handheld weapons. After the mission on Gaul, Luke retreated to his mentor Ben Kenobi's adobe hut in the, the Dune Sea of Tatooine. Part of Rendar's ongoing work for the rebels included bodyguarding the novice knight, a skill which Rendar had a proven track record. By this time, it had come to light that Luke was the target of assassins. Big Giz and his swooper gang accepted a contract on Luke's life rendered by Jabba the Hutt at Shizor's request. Piloting the flying engine pods with seats was one of Dash's many skills. Rendar boasted of killing all members of the Giz gang on the perilous ride from Moss Eisley through Beggar's Canyon and ending at Kenobi's place. Although Giz did badly crash his swoop, he is known to have been nursed back to health by monks who passed by the wreckage. Another gang member, Spiker, is also known to have lived after the failed assassination attempt. Skywalker's version of events also differs. According to Luke, Rendar arrived at his secluded redoubt after the gang and the two worked together to defeat Giz and his men. Shortly after leaving Tatooine, Luke and Rendar, along with Rogue Squadron and a detachment of Bothan commandos, intercepted the Imperial freighter Suprosha, which was carrying the plans for the Death Star too. Here again, there are conflicting reports, with some claiming that Rendar stayed aboard Outrider while the Bothans sliced into the supercomputer on Suprosa. In Rendar's telling, the Bothans were killed prior to obtaining the plans, so he boarded Suprosa, blasted through a legion of Imperial commandos and troopers, destroyed a loader droid, and obtained the plans himself. His comrades-in-arms recalled Dash being extremely upset after the death of the Bothans and blamed himself for it, but his first-person account contains no such details. In the meantime, 
Princess Leia had been working undercover in Coruscant's underworld to learn who was behind the recent attempted assassinations of her brother. Discovering it was Black Sun and Prince Shizor, Rendar, Luke, and Lando Calrissian infiltrated the Dark Prince's palace in order to extract the princess. Here again, there is a divergence between Dash's tale and other reports. Luke and Lando claim that Dash was with them during the infiltration, and Lando destroyed the palace by tossing a thermal detonator down a garbage chute, and the ensuing explosion destroyed the building's foundations, reducing it to rubble. Dash says he went through the sewers alone, fighting a half a dozen immature Dianaga and killing a 10-meter full-grown adult Dianaga with a beak large enough to consume him whole. Rendar air-dried the raw sewage water he had been swimming in by using his jetpack to travel from a cistern beneath Shizor's palace to the lower level of the palace. Once inside, Dash, of course, single-handedly took down a small army of assassin droids, Coruscant guards, and interrogator droids, before destroying one of Shizor's gladiator droids. Dash claims responsibility for the palace's destruction by having placed pulse mines throughout the sublevels. Regardless of what the specific details are, Shizor's grand palace came down, and the Dark Prince escaped the destruction of his palace in a Star Viper, then rendezvoused with the orbiting Feline's fist. Vader's agents intercepted comm chatter from Shizor that revealed he was actively working against the Emperor and trying to have Luke killed. This was all the Dark Lord needed to finally re remove an obsequious green thorn from his side. Rather than let Vader steal revenge from his grasp, Dash says that he took vengeance on the Dark Prince himself in the sky above Coruscant that day. In his telling, he operated the laser turret, defending against Vader's ties and Shizor's star vipers, before kicking Lebo out of the pilot's seat and flying inside Feline's fist, fired proton torpedoes at its power core, then jumped to hyperspace as the station exploded. His rebel allies believed that he died in this battle, and Dash was loath to disabuse them of that notion. Rendar later made a fortune running Onadak's droid technologies with a former enemy and made an HRD of his brother Stanton. The new Stanton Rendar ran the company until at least 28 ABY, at which time Dash was still presumed dead. <laughs> Under the Black Sun. This is almost like making our own Star Wars movie. Greg and Tim Hildebrandt, circa 194 ABY. Shadows of the Empire, in its time, represented the most ambitious LucasArts multimedia project since Return of the Jedi. Steve Perry wrote the novelization of the story, which serves as the core text. In 1994, Perry, Lucy Wilson, Alan Kausch, and other Lucasfilm creatives met at what Perry described as a Methodist youth camp in the middle of nowhere, Skywalker Ranch. This idyllic and verdant property 
in the San Francisco Bay Area served as a base for many of the Star Wars media industrial complexes operations during the Legends era of Star Wars. By late 1996, Shadows of the Empire, the best-selling video game, novel, graphic novel, action figures, micro-machines, special edition comic issues, pop-up comic, collectible trading cards, and a full symphony of soundtrack accompaniment were all released. By 1997, many creations designed for Shadows appeared in the special edition versions of the original Star Wars trilogy. Lucy Wilson came up with the name Shizor using the Portuguese pronunciation for X, pronounced sh, in his name, a combining it with the word Razor, continuing the grand Star Wars tradition of naming characters for what they are, Shizor the Cutthroat. Alan Kausch was given the continuity editor for LucasArts, which is a monumentally inhuman task, so he can be forgiven for dropping the ball on a few details in Shadows. After meeting with about 15 other creatives at Skywalker Ranch, Perry went home with a page full of notes and set to work writing the novel. Also possibly in attendance were John Wagner, who wrote the graphic novel, or Mark High Hutchinson, the director of the video game. Wagner is known in the galaxy of comic books for writing A History of Violence and co-creating Judge Dredd. Hutchinson developed a number of other Star Wars video games throughout the 1990s. One of the many things that sets Shadows apart from the rest of the EU are its original soundtrack, composed by Joel McNeely and recorded by the Scottish National Orchestra. The score included mostly new music composed for Shadows. McNeely felt that he had fewer constraints in writing music for a novel rather than for a movie, and he had more freedom in the writing of it to loiter as long as he chose with given characters or scenes. The CD release contained a Coruscant-based poem written by Ben Burt in the liner notes. Ben voiced R2-D2 and popularized the Wil Wilhelm scream. There was a cornucopia of other fandom-pleasing goodies on the CD release. Each of the primary stories, comic, novel, and game, tell the Shadows stories from a certain point of view. The novel focuses primarily on Luke and Leia's point of view, the graphic novel on the bounty hunters and associated their hijinks and double crosses, and the video game is Dash Rendar's perhaps tall tale. Although Steve Perry was a consultant on the graphic novelization, he is not credited with working on the video game story, which may explain some of the inconsistencies between the game and other Shadows content. John Knowles, the head artist for the video game, is credited with the concept of telling a story between episodes 5 and 6 of the movie franchise and was also used as a model for one of the several varying depictions of Dash Rendar.
LucasArts began development of the game as an N64 launch title because they believed they missed revenue opportunities on previous platforms. Developers had to use prototype N64 controllers concealed inside cardboard boxes during development due to a restrictive non-disclosure agreement with Nintendo. Originally slated to have 19 levels, the game was chopped down to 10, and developers were still hard-pressed to finish ahead of an already postponed Christmas 96 launch. Director Mark Hutchinson said that some team members put in 100-hour work weeks for the majority of 96 in order to finish on time. The action figures based on Shadows include a Prince Shizor figure and a Princess Leia disguised as a Bosch figure. As the backstory of the disguise later used in Episode 6 was explored in Shadows. The line also marks the first time Kenner used a non-vintage mold in casting the Outrider model, which now demands a price of around $100 as a collector's item. Micro Machines produced a separate line of miniatures, along with re-releases of selected sections of the graphic novels. A singular pop-up comic was also produced, also by reusing material from the original graphic novel. The 100 collectible trading cards are unique in that they tie in elements of all three primary stories. The Hildebrandt brothers who produced the cards were the same team that painted many of the Star Wars franchise's memorable film posters. ASP labor droids, Sentinel-class landing craft, swoop bikes, and Outrider were all introduced first in Shadows and then appeared in the special edition of films in 97. In LucasArts' aggressive revitalization of Star Wars in the latter 90s, the Phantom Menace was intended to be released in 97, with the special edition re-releases of the original trilogy in 96. Despite some schedule shuffling, they managed to put out a good product in Shadows of the Empire, which may qualify as an early but overlooked example of hypertext fiction. Perhaps presaged by the Star Wars fandom publication Hyperspace, Shadows certainly fits Wikipedia's def definition of hypertext fiction. Quote, characterized by network nodes of text making up a fictional story. End quote. In other words, our three primary Shadows stories, where each story is one of the network nodes, the most accessible examples of hypertext fiction are choose-your-own-adventure books, where readers take part in determining how the story unfolds, of which there are many licensed Star Wars titles. There is an obvious parallel between the text interaction in hypertext fiction and that found in video games, though it would not be fully explored until titles like Knights of the Old Republic. One of the defining features of hypertext fiction is also the medium, or mediums in which a story is told. To experience a complete hypertext story, the reader must interact with it across multiple media platforms, 
such as a novel, video game, and comic book. Welcome aboard the Millennial Falcon. We just disembarked from Ord Mantel on our way to Gaul right now. Why are you looking at me that way, Christian? Uh, I thought we were going to uh, some paradise world to relax. No. Oh. no. Do you have a specific Tricky. name for me? I don't. As we we know, can just it, make a random jump into this space. This podcast is, is actually how I write it, is I just put a bunch of uh, nouns from wikipedia into like a random generator and it just punches out and a it, script and it you. just punches out yeah. a script because that's all it is it's just word salad yeah. of a bunch of different random names star warsy sounding that words. nobody can pronounce yes. like uh <laughs> peniality is that is that one of our star Penality. wars <laughs> words we discovered today the def- definition is to be determined <laughs> that's what peniality is okay so shadows of the empire uh for those of you who don't no. Uh, I guess we covered it. It's a big video game. It was a big release back in the 90s. It was supposed to be a launch title, the video game for N64, but uh, they didn't make the launch of N64 because they were they were basically being too ambitious with what they wanted to do with the game, I think. So it came out the year after uh, the N64 did. And I think Shadows of the Empire, for me anyway, is probably like the reason why I'm as big a Star Wars fan as I am because of like how old I was and like we just bought the N64 and that was like the first cool game that we actually liked that yeah. we got for it. It's like the Halo and Xbox generation. Like, exactly. You can't disassociate. So I just yeah. played that game like over and over again. Yeah, and I did too. I played it quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of the research for this episode, I actually went back and I believe it is the original copy that we had back in the 90s. <laughs> it survived this Shadow. long. It eh? survived this long. Hey, man, car- cartridges, they'll, they last 100 years. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is playable. Yeah. And I beat it on medium up to the Dianaga in the sewers. And then I just, I got like game over twice by that thing. And then I gave up because I'd been doing it for like four hours at <laughs> that point yeah rookie numbers yeah exactly. yeah it is crazy to me i didn't realize how big of a franchise shadows of the empire was yeah I, to me i just kind of remember the game but uh i i just uh, i remember there being a couple comic books but I, but i also remember the toys too seeing the toys in the store and stuff but yeah. it is kind of crazy the, the better way to describe it i think is like a multimedia project right and yeah. that's a lot star wars has done that a few times now yeah. you know back yeah. then this was the first time they did it they did it with uh what's his face force unleashed uh yes that's that's kind of a similar yeah or uh, even the whole campaign the clone wars yeah. you know they have the books novels comic books video games all tied in together tv shows and uh and even lately with the Disney era, they're starting to launch this High Republic thing, which is supposed to be a big multimedia event. Right, then it's right. not as expansive. It doesn't look like there's video games or movies or any kind, anything like that. Yeah. But Shadows of the yeah, Empire totally. really, like, they released a soundtrack right. for a book. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. amazing. I, well, I even thought, George Lucas included some of the stuff into the, the special editions of the movies, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, uh, which also brings up another question. Is it canon? Like if it's if it's in the if 
if Disney is saying the original trilogy is canon, yeah, where, and those do, where are does Shadows the, of the Empire? Yes, the, the the Lambda class uh, shuttles. Those are the things that yeah. Emperor Palpatine flew around in. The really fat Imperial shuttles. Yeah, there are for sure elements. Um, things like Black Sun for sure is now canonized because of the Clone Wars. The Falling are canonized because of the Clone Wars. Right, but yeah. details like Shizor and and at the restaurant. Uh, in uh, Galaxy's End, the Star Wars theme park, you can order a Shizor salad. Okay. Oh, well, that answers all the questions. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's like, no, I it, feel like it me, does. That's, that's enough. That's all I need. <laughs> your your uh, threshold for confirmation is yeah. very low. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but at least they didn't retcon every good thing. <laughs> um, so the some of those things that appeared in the special edition... I mean, the things that you could almost blink and miss, but there's like that silver droid on Tatooine when um, Luke and Ben and the droids visit. He's just like holding some random piece of something and he's like silver, kind of skeletal looking, f- but broad frame. That's an ASP droid. They were designed yeah. specifically for Shadows of the Empire. A little droid comes up to him and makes fun of him and then he like bonks it on the head. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And um, Vader also used that droid as his, like, what he had to spar with to keep his lightsaber skills uh, in check. But he also commented that he had, like, trouble keeping his practice chamber stocked with asp droids because he just like mowed through so many of them which begs the question empire why are you using <laughs> these crappy droids because they have to, to train your most valuable asset with <laughs> this seems like a bad idea yeah. no wonder he lost against luke skywalker <laughs> yeah they should have got him an ig88 or something precisely or uh, i forget what the name of the droid is in the force unleashed too that can actually like Generate oh, you know what I also found out? image of other enemies. Yeah. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this because we should save it for a new, a different episode. But uh, Darth Maul had C-3PX, which was a reprogrammed C-3PO <laughs> droid. That was uh, <laughs> reprogrammed to be an assassin droid. Oh, okay. So he could have uh, sparred with C-3PX perhaps Man, because like- C-3PX actually survived. That would have had to been like almost completely redesigned to move. Yeah, I don't know about <laughs> agile enough to be an assassin droid. But maybe C-3PO is moving like that not because it's a physical constraint. Maybe it's just a programming constraint to make him look maybe. docile and un- unimpressive, right? Yeah, and his heart beats the heart of an assassin. Now, I think there are actually some Clone Wars comics in which C-3PO is depicted like running, like not that weird shuffle thing that he does in the movies. <laughs> yeah, that's I, weird though. Yeah, it, 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 it doesn't entirely makes sense yeah Yeah. anyways but uh so is dash a dirty liar because my contention is that the video game of shadows of the empire is the only true story (laughs) is dash rendar's first person account right (laughs) because the all the other story elements are sort of confirmed by each other right like the the novel and the graphic novel don't conflict with each other they they complement each other, but then the Shadows of the Empire game actually conflicts with both of those narratives, right? Right, because there's like the the swoop the the swoop level, which is like my favorite level in Shadows of the Empire, where you get to ride on a hover bike 
and it's it's like very Mad Max. You go through Moss Eisley, which is fun, mm-hmm. and then uh, you fly over a bunch of Sarlacc pits, which is great. And if you don't hit the jump just right, you fall down into the pit and die. And then you go through Beggar's Canyon. But uh, anyway, that didn't really happen in either the graphic novel or the regular novel. There was actually an imperial spy there who killed a bunch of the swoop racers i believe his name was jix and then because he wanted to keep luke alive on vader's behalf and then luke and dash teamed up to take out the remaining members it was not dash protecting luke from the entire gang he actually dropped the ball according to (laughs) to the graphic novel because the bikers got there before him and luke had to defend himself before dash was even at Ben Kenobi's house, according to Luke. <laughs> Luke is obviously the unreliable narrator. He is an unreliable story. narrator. You know, he turned dark. <laughs> he turned to the dark side at one point. He's a flip-flopper. That's what he is. <laughs> you can't nail this guy down. He's all over the place. One day, he's Darth Skywalker. The next day, he's Master Skywalker. And there and back again. He's using force lightning sometimes. You don't. You can't trust this guy. He's a duplicitous little piece of. Sound like you have something against force users. So. I don't know. It just keeps coming up somehow. The. <laughs> Never mind. I'm glad. I'm glad Dash Rendar is also fleshed out a lot because a lot of my memories to go back to the video game, right? And you have this. He's a cool new character that's introduced, but they don't give a lot of backstory to him. No. Yeah. There's not much character development in the game. No. Certainly. Yeah. But he his character is really fleshed out, is especially in the, in the novel. He's like, you know how Han Solo is kind of like the the typical cocky spacer dude, but Dash Rendar takes that to like the next level. Yeah. He's like even cockier, and I kind of think deservedly so. Like it seems like Dash sort of ha- has earned his own gigantic head through because Lando, for example, endorses the fact that he could like shoot the wing nuts off a table from 20 yards away with a blaster pistol. Right. And he's also an amazing pilot. And he's also, he's done, he did a bodyguard work for a famous um, rebel spy back in the day. There's actually a prequel novel to uh, shadows of the empire that, that came out. That's one of Dash's earlier missions. Hmm. Yeah. I think the only thing, I do like, and I will say I like Rendar's character. However, it he's a little, he's just the scoundrel character, right? And it's almost a little too similar to Han Solo. It, it, it's more like Han Solo. Uh, like, on steroids. Yeah, or, or like Han Solo is Dash Rendar wearing a seatbelt or something, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> Here's where you're wrong, though, is Han changes kind of. Yeah, Dash doesn't change. Right, right. Han's character evolves. He has yeah, yeah. Dash is just Dash stays that to a family man. That's super cocky jerk. Yeah, for his whole life, as far as we can tell. But it is just kind of the 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 scoundrel archetype, right? Like even the way he looks, like he wears the same Corellian style pants. I think if you actually read the novel, though, like the way he talks and stuff is is not really that much like Han. Han's very. Hands can be like self-deprecating and he uses like the same blaster. Sarcastic. <laughs> Everybody uses that blaster. <laughs> That's like the standard blaster. Okay. Um, I think Jordan's wrong. He's not just no. a hand cloak clone. He's more like Duke Nukem. 
Yeah, I was gonna say eighties <laughs> action kind of, hero. Yeah, like even like yeah. his arms are. Like, That's exactly what he's like. like. Yeah, like he's more like a, a classic one dimensional action hero than than Han is. Okay, I will. I will just mention this. Um, uh, so this is from fandom.com uh, Dash Randar was mentioned in Star Wars canon in the 2018 journal book Solo a Star Wars Story Tales from Vandor written by Jason Fry Fry later revealed on Twitter that Randar's inclusion in the book was meant as a humorous nod to the character's reputation for being extremely similar to Han Solo so I maybe not but it is a lot it does seem like a lot of people Draw that comparison. Yeah, draw that. Yeah, comparison. no, I, I I do agree with with Jordan. He's he seems like a, a hand turned up to eleven. They have their differences, but you L- can, like I think their character the arcs template. do diverge. Yes, but, but the template. Yeah, is exactly. The same. Yeah, and he's also very similar to Kyle Katarn as well. He doesn't really look like Han Solo. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> how how he just wears the same clothes as him. Except <laughs> he's not wearing pants. the same clothes. As just him. the same pants. Though. He's not wearing the same. pants. He was in one of it. <laughs> Anyways, Kyle Katarn also. You know what this kind of sounds like? What? It's, do I hear an echo? A, do I, do I hear an, an echo in this chamber? We got rid of our echo chamber a long time ago. <laughs> Apparently We're not. Weighing the ship down. <laughs> um, the, yeah, anyways, Kyle Katarn is also very similar in that roguish ex-imperial kind of background. I would say I, I like. I would say Kyle is closer to Han than Dash. They're all built on the same template. <laughs> okay, then they, that, they, then they that template are. is a is a man who goes around the galaxy <laughs> blasting people. Okay. That's then a I template. guess, That's I a guess every single Star Wars character is <laughs> exactly the same. Then. No. No. Like in terms of like kind of a re- a renegade does his own thing. Um, although, well, although that's engaged. everybody that's every spacer in the outer rim though. I do want to say well yeah it, but that's the problem with Star Wars in general is people fall into these big yeah, archetypes yeah. Yeah. I think that's just the problem that you're seeing <laughs> in Star Wars as we do this show no the stories sound like they rhyme <laughs> these characters all rhyme well if it's not a problem for, me, for you I'm not saying it has to be a problem I'm saying it's it's a critique Anyways, as Dash's story conflicts with the other accounts, what's your uh, other take? Could the rebels be lying about this? Or are they trying to cover something? Oh, that's a good take. But I think because, and and again, if if you'd actually if you read the book, you would see that Dash, even much more so than Han, is constantly bragging about his his skills, his exploits, about his his exploits. So it sounds to me, and and because the video game is. It's everything he did in the graphic novel and the comic, except better, and he's the star. Yeah, he happens to be the center of the story. <laughs> he happens to be the center of attention. So, And I think that also uh, displays something about his character <laughs> in a weird way that Han Solo's character uh, never shows, is that, you know, maybe he's a compulsive liar? <laughs> <laughs> it's a character trait. It's a character trait. Yeah. Uh, another thing is that Fett was wrong. Boba Fett said that uh, Shizor's lion died, and this is this was a terrible plot line. I don't know whose idea it was, but I'm officially throwing shade on them. Shizor's niece survived uh, for a few years after um, the House Feline was destroyed by Vader, and then she sort of tried to make a run at becoming Underlord of Black Sun 
while impersonating Prince Caesar, <laughs> literally wearing a Prince Caesar mask oh and like broad shoulders under her cloak or something. I was like, what are you doing? What? I think, you know what? That's another Star Wars thing where they, they, killed, so off stupid. A, they killed off a cool villain. Yeah. And someone else wanted to use that villain again. So they're just like, oh, let's bring him back somehow. And so they had an impersonator, I guess. It, it happens a, a few times in Star Wars. And, you know, even with Darth Maul coming back, that's a yeah. whole debate for another episode. But how many know, times can a guy come back? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, they, they kill off these cool. Same thing happens to Ventress. Twice, like, at least twice. At least twice, yeah. <laughs> at least, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, they, they realize they squandered a cool character. Well, they right. didn't squander. That's a bad word. Because sometimes it's cool in a good character dies right it it adds like gravitas and i think if, if game of thrones has taught us anything about stories yeah. it's that killing people that you like is is generally good for dramatic tension yeah exactly so star wars i think is sometimes too scared of doing that and always tries to I, and you know what it could be the fact that another author comes along and takes a property and they're like oh i really like that i wish you didn't kill that character i'm gonna resurrect them you know and then yeah inserts their own kind of version but uh yeah yeah i mean you can always do prequels so uh sam you mentioned hypertext fiction in the uh in the episode yeah so hypertext fiction is just sort of like one of those sort of airy fairy academic uh literature ideas and guys like uh david foster wallace who's like a sort of famous ish writer of oh yeah i'm familiar with him of what what genre would you say he writes he in? writes in fiction and non-fiction i'm pretty sure well yeah but what genre of fiction I, i'm I not sure literary fiction that's yeah the term. it would, be, that's yeah, the it would term. be literary fiction so david foster wallace is a guy who sort of experimented it with it a little bit in that like a lot of his fiction novels were like extensively extensively footnoted and like those footnotes themselves sort of became part of the, the like another story within the story. And then um, I forget the guy's name. I think his name is Danielewski or something, wrote a book called House of Leaves, which is also like that. It's got several different networked nodes within it. And so one of the things David Foster Wallace talked about is that this is sort of the future of literature is like it's all going to be interactive in in some fashion and it's all going to be across multiple platforms hmm. like what star wars uh started to do yeah and again i'm i'm finding in the research for this there's a lot of like canon material that was only ever produced in star wars in like the the lucas arts produced fanzine hyperspace which is like another aspect of that. It's another node, networked node outside of the movies or the comic books was just this magazine, which I now have to like get copies of somehow because there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole genre of Star Wars short fiction that I think we're completely unfamiliar with because it was like mostly released in that, released in that magazine. Hmm. That I, in some ways it's true this whole like concept even now we're seeing like these cinematic universes they, they describe essentially that as universes yeah and they release multimedia projects like tv shows movies books comic books all intertwined with the main story that they're telling yeah so in some ways like that it, that seems to be the direction that a lot of 
organizations or companies are going in with. And I mean, that's even what we're doing with <laughs> with the show. Like, we're this, contributing. This yes. is essentially this also a piece of hypertext fiction. Yeah, because you could read it. Although we're not really, we're not producing new content. Well, we're releasing it on YouTube and and podcasts. Yeah, but we're platforms, we're just though. explaining stuff that already exists. We're not adding to the story. If well, we you're like ha- doing short audio. You, you don't have to so. add things for the the node, right? It's a different node. Every medium represents a, oh, okay. a different node, yeah. right? And that's sort of what qualifies you as hypertext fiction. Okay, is having the multiple nodes. And then if we went on the website Medium, for example, just right. just to throw in more word salad, <laughs> Medium, I'll have a word salad. Christian will have the Shizor salad. Jordan's <laughs> going to have the Waldorf. And uh, a side of blue milk. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> the side of blue milk. Uh, well, it looks like uh, we're in sensor range of Gaul, so we've got to fly down into Smuggler's Gorge and uh, avoid those probe droids and cliff wampas and so on and so forth and this is sam signing off may the forks be with you you are listening to the star lores podcast Just wanted to let everyone know what's happening here at the Star Lords podcast. Star Lords is now on Discord. If you would like to join the Star Lords Cantina Discord server, you can find a link in the description or on any of our social media accounts. Reach out with a DM or email. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching the Star Lords podcast. Go ahead and give our page a like and send us a message. You can also email at starlorespodcast at gmail.com. Send us your fan art, Star Wars collections, or fan fictions, and you may even get a feature on one of our pages or even the show. Don't be afraid to offer corrections or add to any of the topics that we discuss on the show. We are also on Patreon, so if you want to help us pay the bills, as well as get a few awesome perks like bonus episodes, access to the private Facebook group, or the VIP section of the Discord server. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash starlores and sign up for as little as one US dollar a month. And finally, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher app or YouTube, as well as sending us a five-star review on iTunes. This really helps us reach a wider audience. Enjoy the rest of the show.